2: Welcome
3: to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and
0: find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in, find a seat, and tonight grab a lap robe and Yes, I, I know, it's still summer, it's still in the nineties, but I have the air cranked up and the lights dim the starlight because tonight we're getting out of summer sweat and into a winter way of mine. Tonight, well, I'll tell you more in a minute. To begin with, though, let's have a nice, cool poem, a tale of chilly horror among well, another species.
2: Egg Horror Poem by Laura Winter Small, white, afraid of heights, whispering in the cold, dark carton to the rest of the dozen. They are ten now. Any meal is dangerous, but they fear breakfast most. They jostle in their compartments, trying for tiny, dark-veined cracks, not enough to hurt much, just anything to make them unattractive to the big hands that reach in from time to random time. They tell horror stories that their mothers, the chickens, cluck to them. Meringues, omelets, egg salad sandwiches, That destroyer of dozens, the homemade angel food cake. The door opens. Light filters into the carton. Let it be the milk. They pray. But the carton opens. A hand reaches in once, twice. Before they can even jiggle, they are alone again in the cold, in the dark. New spaces hollow where the two were. Through the heavy door they hear the sound of the mixer, deadly blades whirring. They huddle, the eight, in the cold, in the dark, and wait.
0: As mentioned, Egg Horror Poem is by Laurel Winter. Laurel Winter grew up in the mountains and the skies of Montana, and attended a one-room country grade school, with about a dozen or two students in grades one through eight. She then went to Absorkey High School, a thirty-mile one-way bus trip away. There were thirty-three in her graduating class. Her higher education has been somewhat eclectic, she says. It includes credits in English, physics, psychology from Montana State, and numerous writing and art classes. Currently, she's studying energy medicine. Her first novel, Growing Wings, was a finalist for the Mythopoeic Award for children's fantasy, and she's won back-to-back Reisling and Asimov Reader's Polls Awards for the Best Poem, a World Fantasy Award for her novella Sky Eyes, and the 2003 McKnight Artist Fellowship for Children's Fiction. She has twin sons who have now graduated from high school, and Laurel belongs to a 13-pound black cat named Panther. We should introduce him to Mahler, the ink-black cat of the Nook. Anyway, stop by her site at http colon slash slash www.laurelwinter.com. And thank you to Celia Santoro for reading that for us. Celia, uh, no surprise here, is my wife. She's read for us before. She is a retired teacher. She is a poet and an artist. Thanks again. Now to the usual. Donate. Yes. And when it comes out, buy Tales to Terrify Volume 1. You'll love it. And the important thing this week to say is that we need writers. Remember, I said earlier that one reason I finally said yes to Tony when he asked me to do Tales to Terrify was I thought this would be a great opportunity to give new authors a chance to be heard and get their work out into the world. See, I not only wanted to present writers we all know and love, Gene Wolfe, uh, Joe Lansdale, Stephen King, you know who they are. But I also wanted to feature work by people like Martin Muncy or Mike Pincus, Alex Collier, B.C. Bell. The list goes on. So, if you're out there, and if you're a writer who writes the sort of things we do here, and if you've been telling yourself, geez, I'm as good as that, well, show us. Send us a story. Long, short, doesn't matter. We'll consider everything from short shorts to say nine thousand words. Send it using the usual format twelve point courier or times Roman, double space, the usual, and send it as an attached file to Are you ready? Get a pen. Okay. Tales to terrify at gmail dot com. That's simple, hmm? Okay, and the other usual things, stop by the site, contribute a few dollars to help us, stop by iTunes, give us a nice Friday night friendly rating, it all helps. And don't forget our sisters out there in the District of Wonders. Crime City Central, protecting Project Pulp, and the Starship Sofa. Crime, classic adventure, horror, science fiction. It's as though I were young again. Well, we've got horror fiction for our listening pleasures here in the Nook. A tale set above the Arctic Circle in highly civilized Sweden. It's a story told by an English fellow with whom I've had a nodding acquaintanceship in years gone by, Mr. Stephen Saville. Steve Saville was born on October twelfth, 1969, in Newcastle, England. He's a British fantasy, horror, and thriller writer, and an editor who now lives in Stockholm, Sweden. His published work includes novels and numerous short stories in magazines and anthologies. He was runner-up for the British Fantasy Award in 2000. With his novel Primeval Shadows of the Jaguar, Savile won the Best Young Adult Original Novel for the 2009 Scribe Awards, presented by the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers. More about Stephen Savile in a few chilly minutes, because here, now...
4: For your winter pleasure is. The Horned Man by Stephen Savile. The weather advisory upgraded the storm to Class 2. I didn't know what that meant, exactly, but it didn't take a meteorologist to know that it wasn't good. Given the fact that the snowbanks at the side of the road were already higher than the car, and the air was so thick with squalling snow, I could barely see beyond the wipers as they laboured to keep the windshield clear. Given what was happening outside, I figured Class 2 was basically weather speak for Snowmageddon. We were still about three hours' drive from Jukes and the Ice Hotel, way up in the north of Sweden. The directions on the map said drive straight on to the end of the world and turn right. I wasn't sure where exactly the world ended. I couldn't see the edge for all the snow. I kept telling myself it was okay, we'd be in a warm bed soon enough, and tried not to think about the fact that the entire hotel was chiselled out of ice. Bed included. We'd driven past a sports hall about an hour back, or the remains of a sports hall to be more precise. The sheer weight of the snow had brought the roof down. The world outside the car was white, just white. Driving in it was exhausting, but thankfully the winter tyres had good traction and the snowploughs had been out not so long ago. I just stared at the wipers flicking back and forth and had to take it on trust that there was road at the end of the hood. The way the car lurched sometimes as it hit potholes and jounced over ruts, it was an act of faith akin to believing in the great teapot in the sky. The headlights were useless. There was no one else on the road, for what felt like a thousand miles in any direction. The trip had been my idea. A romantic getaway to say thanks for putting up with me, working on our honeymoon. That was the joy of being freelance. It basically meant, don't work, don't eat. Luckily, Mel knew what she was getting into before she said yes. We'd been living together for the best part of a decade before I popped the question. So this was our little getaway, a honeymoon within the honeymoon. We'd been staying in Stockholm, doing the rounds, where Olaf Palm, the Swedish Prime Minister, had been shot. The Subway Art Exhibition, that just seems to go on and on and on, over hundreds of train stations with crazy names. The Open Air Museum, with its reconstructed Viking homes, the Vasa the long ship that sank on its maiden voyage, only for the Swedes to dredge her up four hundred years later. Climbing to the coronet of the city hall, and picking out places we'd been the day before, when we'd found this little hotel bar made completely out of ice, chairs, tables, bar, even the tumblers, with their bright red and blue vodkas. I had it all planned. We'd hire a car. We'd take a few days, dry up there, see the northern lights, if we were lucky, and then get a plane back from Kiruna to Stockholm. It was one thing to see 770 miles on the brochure, but something else entirely, to turn them into hours on some of the worst roads I'd ever driven, in a snowstorm, with zero cell phone coverage. You don't think about stuff like gas stations en route, and narrow roads, sometimes barely more than dirt tracks winding between impossibly thick forest. Trees, I swear, outnumber Swedes by a factor of 80,000 to one. Before we were outside of Stockholm suburbs, the trees had already started to claim back the roads for the forest eternal. It had seemed like an adventure. Now it felt like an expedition... Terra Nova, with me cast in the role of the doomed Robert Falcon Scott, and Mel as my sleeping oats. We might have been driving towards the wrong pole, but there was plenty of snow to make up for that. I turned up the heat. One of the best things about cars over here is that they have these wires woven into the seats. One flick of a button and your back and butt are toasting away nicely. Of course, that doesn't stop the arctic chill from seeping in through the cold metal of the door. But compared to those explorers of old, I'd got a good thing going. I had the music down low because Mel was asleep in the passenger seat and I didn't want to wake her. She had a blanket pulled up to her chin. She was like a little child. Put her in a car for any length of time and the movement would lull her to sleep. Every few minutes I'd catch myself looking at her and wondering how I'd been so lucky. I liked to watch her sleep. That was my secret. Ever since that first night we'd slept together, I'd find myself staying awake a few minutes more just to watch her sleeping. I had started out listening to an eight-tis playlist, Icicle Works, Killing Joke, Susie Sue, and a little Lloyd Cole. But after hours, staring at the monotony of white, I needed something with a little more life to it, so flicked over to my party playlist. Lots of mind-numbing, nerve-jangling pop. The teddy bears were busy getting their mother a house when a moose stepped in front of the car. At least it looked like a moose in the glimpse I caught of it. Great antlers, broad haunches, before the impact broke one of the antlers and cracked right through the windshield. We were only going about ten miles an hour. As it was, it felt as though I'd just driven straight into a brick wall. A second after the glass cobwebbed, the airbag deployed. I wrenched my hands away from the wheel, but not quickly enough to save my wrists from burning right across the veins. The bag pinned me into the bucket seat. Without a passenger side airbag, Mel had been thrown forward in her seat, only for the belt to cut across her shoulder and pull her back. She screamed, not realising what was happening. I tried to tell her everything was okay, but with the hiss of the airbag and the suddenly discordant jar-jar-jar of the music, coupled with the shattered windshield and the lurch of the car as the moose rolled off the hood, said everything was most definitely not okay. I reached across putting my hand on Mel's knee. You okay, kiddo? She gave me a smile that said, Sure, you half kill me in the middle of God knows where. I'm just peachy. How about you? The airbag deflated slowly, the air leaking out of it with a mocking hiss. After a few minutes, it had gone down enough that I could lean over to her. I cupped her cheek with my right hand, wincing slightly as my burned wrist brushed against her jaw. I felt like the world's greatest moron. But they didn't make mugs for that. Or maybe they did. No doubt Hallmark had a card range, at least. Sorry, I didn't see it. I shrugged. Like it ought to be obvious that really I was apologising for all of it for the harebrained idea of travelling almost a thousand miles through the forest wilderness of a foreign country in driving snows because I thought the northern lights and a bed of ice might be romantic. She smiled back at me and said, It's not your fault. The subtext being, You're special. You don't think like normal people, so why would I expect you to think about stuff like cell phone coverage, and roadside rescue. Welcome to my life. Unsurprisingly, the engine had stalled. I turned the key twice, only for something in the steering column to grate, and then nothing. The sum of my mechanical knowledge amounted to check the spark plugs, then dial AAA. Up until that moment, I had been doing my best not to think about the cracked windshield. I wasn't so much worried about the insurance covering it, as I was it holding together for however many more miles we had to go before we slept. We couldn't exactly stick it together with electrical tape. I was going to have to brave the great outdoors. It could have been minus 20 or minus 40 out there, I couldn't tell, and without the right equipment, I wasn't sure it even mattered. The coats were in the trunk. We bought them from a small camping store in the old town. They were supposedly authentic Sami, lambskin and fur. But right then I would have killed for Gore-Tex and Goose-Down and as much synthetic warmth as possible. Call me a city boy, but it's man-made all the way when I am serious about staying warm. We were deep into Sami territory. Up until about 48 hours before, I'd been calling it Lapland. But the woman selling us the coats had taken great pride in telling us all about her culture. Some of it, it seemed, had stuck in my head. I tried the engine again. No joy. So I reached into the glove box for my cell phone, knowing, even as I turned it on, there wasn't a hope in hell that there was a GPS antenna within a hundred miles. Still... I had to try it, just so I knew it didn't work. It was the hunter-gatherer thing, spliced with the male ego. I wanted Mel to know I was good in a crisis. The irony of it was, she knew I wasn't. Of the two of us, she was the one who changed the fuses, and bled the radiators, and did all the odd jobs like plastering the chips out of the old walls in our apartment. She was hardly a Penelope pit-stop in need of saving from the anthill mob. She was more like Dick Dastardly, I thought, and I couldn't help myself. I chuckled like Mutley. I opened the door, and the biting cold came streaming in. And even more like the doomed Captain Scott than I'd ever imagined. I joked. I'm going outside. I may be some time. Close the door after you. Mel said, laughing at my melodramatics. I slammed the car door. I couldn't see the moose. Not a surprise given the hellish snows swirling all around my face. But I assumed that meant it had survived the crash and was off in the forest somewhere talking to its moose kids about the stupid drivers not using their ABS brakes and power assisted steering. I was right about one thing. I really couldn't tell the difference between minus twenty and minus forty. I used the bodywork to guide me around to the trunk. The cold brought tears to my eyes, even before I had felt my way halfway around the car. Of all the stupid things to notice, my eyebrows were the first to freeze. Long before the cold chapped my cheeks, my eyebrows were burning. I fumbled the key in the lock twice, before I managed to force it in. It refused to turn, and I realised the damn cold had probably frozen the lock hours ago. It wasn't as if it had the engine's heat to keep it warm. I wasn't sure about forcing it, just in case it broke the key, what with the coats being inside and, you know, it being the ignition key. Then I realised I was being my usual idiot self. I hammered on the back window and mimed for Mel to lean forward and pop the trunk from inside. The lid needed a little bit of help to break the ice that frosted it shut. But after a bit of grunting and kicking uselessly at the tyres, it opened. I put one of the Sami coats on and took the other one for Mel. With the engine stalled, the inside of the car was going to get very cold very quickly. I'm sure it was some sort of perverse law of physics that said the more your body needs the heat, the quicker the world around you is going to get seriously cold. I checked the cell phone again, begging for a single bar. Hope, as my dear old mother used to say, is for the hopeless. I was way past hopeless and into beggar territory, and I most certainly wasn't too proud. Even with the authentic Sami fur, it wasn't exactly warm. The wind whipped the snow around into my face, meaning I kept blinking every few seconds as a snowflake made it past my eyelashes. The damage was worse than I thought. The hood had caved in, pressing down on the engine block, and the radiator grille was buckled. That was just the superficial stuff. I had no idea what was going on inside the finer workings of the machine. "'Leaning over the hood, I felt sure someone was watching me. "'But when I craned my neck, there was nothing to see but snow. "'I went back around to the passenger side door and tapped on the window. "'Mel didn't wind it down, and I couldn't say I blamed her. "'I shrugged, miming cluelessness. "'She didn't look surprised. "'My male ego would take the wounding just this once. "'As I was working my way, Back around to the driver's side, I saw it, standing there, at the side of the narrow road, sheltering between the thick boles of the tall trees. At least I assumed they were tall. Looking up, I couldn't see the tops, but that didn't mean much. I say, it. I don't know what it was. But it, sure as hell, wasn't like any moose I had ever seen, save for the antlers, the snow didn't make it easy but i could have sworn it was a man a good head taller than me naked as the day he was born save for a headdress of eighteen points it had to be a headdress but i wasn't looking that closely at the horns to be fair well not the ones on his head the man was hard and huge in my jeans, beneath the thermal long johns and the boxer shorts, the cold had shrunk my testicles to the size of peanuts before they'd ascended. but this guy seemed positively invigorated by the ball-numbing cold. "'Hey! Hey you!' I called out. He said something I couldn't understand. It was one of those moments when I was so deeply proud to be an American— in the middle of nowhere, shouting at a naked guy and being absolutely clueless when he shouted back. He could have been saying, Follow me, our village is near. We have warm beds, food and a mechanic who can fix your car. Of course, he could just as easily have been saying, I cannibal, ugh. I eat tourists for breakfast in morning, after I rut with pretty one, ugh. I patted my chest and said, "'Steve, I'm Steve!' Then mimicked the move, patting the roof of the car. "'We're stuck. Help. Cold. Need fire. Shelter. Warm?' I felt like an absolute moron. I was doing the typical tourist thing, speaking two octaves louder, as if shouting something made it more understandable. "'What can I say? I like to wear my ignorance on my sleeve.' He backed away from me, disappearing into the deeper snow. I made to follow, the crisp snow crunching under my shoes. Five feet off the side of the road, and we went from being ankle-deep to knee-deep. I could feel the cold biting at the back of my throat. I really couldn't understand how this...
2: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds
4: guy could stand it, but I guess it was something about the body regulating its own temperature, keeping the blood flowing and all that. There's a reason people say crazy Swedes, after all. These were the guys who spent an hour sweating their butts off in the sauna, then ran outside naked, rolled around in the snow, and dove naked into icy lakes because it got the heart pumping. Running around their forest, in the bath, "'save for a set of antlers, was pretty much par for the course. "'And was this the thing that the car had hit? "'Not a moose at all, but some nutty Swede. Ten steps on and I was lost. "'The snow was disorientating, "'and if anything the damned stuff was thickening in front of my face. "'My mind raced with a fake newspaper headline. "'Tragic couple found in frozen embrace.' the words, I told you so, written in the snow. I couldn't see the car, and I couldn't see the guy. He knew this place. I didn't. Going after him was stupid. There was stupid, and then there was stupid. I made a choice and turned back. I wasn't about to wander off into the middle of the forest and get myself lost. Even though I hadn't gone more than 15, 20 yards at most... Getting back to the car was a slog. I was sweating by the time I opened the door and sank into the driver's seat. My breath fogged in front of my face. Oh, great. The temperature had dropped about ten degrees already, and the engine had only been dead for, what, five minutes? I tried to wrestle the airbag back into the steering column, realising it was probably the reason for the ignition not working some sort of safety feature that was probably going to get us killed. I forced the key back into the ignition and twisted it. The engine turned over, and I thought for a moment it was going to catch, but it didn't. Two more tries, and I was in danger of flooding the engine. I buried my face in my hands. Christ, I said through my fingers. This is ridiculous. She didn't disagree. What are we going to do? And that was the $64,000 question. What were we going to do? The thing was, I didn't have a clue. Sit tight and wait for the Saint Bernard to turn up with his brandy keg. Wrap up warm and trek out into the woods and hope to hell we found the village before we froze to death. There wasn't much of a choice. Try and follow the guy's tracks back to the village, I offered. It was the closest I had to a good idea. We don't know how far it is, Mel said. She had put her Sami coat on and didn't look particularly thrilled with the idea of getting out of the car. True, but how many cars have we passed on the road in the last hour? The magic number wasn't three. It was barely even a number, technically, the answer being a big fat zero. We're in no man's land here, babe. We could sit here all night without anyone driving past. I figure it's better we take our fate into our own hands. I don't know, she said. Surely we should stay by the car. The road's been ploughed. That must mean people use it fairly regularly, right? It was sound logic. But who's to say it wasn't just a case of a morning-evening commute, and there wouldn't be another car on the road for the best part of ten hours? I'm going out. "'You can stay here if you want.' "'I tossed her the keys. "'Try the engine every fifteen minutes. "'If it starts, keep it running until I get back. "'I won't be long.' "'Famous last words,' Mel said, trying to be funny, "'but this time I didn't feel like laughing. "'I wanted her to come with me, "'but I wasn't about to force her. "'The fact of the matter was "'I really didn't want to go trudging off into God-knows-where by myself.' Having her with me would have felt a hell of a lot better. I slammed the door a little harder than I needed to. I couldn't make up my mind if the snow was worse. I just put my head down and walked into the blizzard. I found his footprints on the embankment and followed them into the trees. For all that he was taller than me, his feet weren't that big, if the tracks were anything to go by. I pushed on, moving from tree to tree and looking up occasionally, once I was well and truly under the canopy of the branches, and the worst of the snow was out of my eyes. There was a single red blood spot on the unbroken snow, like a blood-red rose, there in the perfect white. Beside it, the footprints led a crooked path through the trees. I tried to make up my mind if it looked as though the guy's footsteps were dragging in places or not. Maybe I'd done more damage to him than I thought. I mean, he'd done enough damage to the car. The cold was killing me. It hurt to swallow a breath. The air bit at the back of my throat. I pulled the fur lining of the Sami coat's hood down over my eyes and tried to pull the collar up far enough to cover my mouth and create a funnel of warm air from my own breathing. I couldn't see for the tears in my eyes, and every third breath I was sniffling back up, streamers of snot. It wasn't my imagination. The tracks were becoming more and more erratic the further I followed them. There was more blood, too. One drop became two, became a red spatter, like something out of one of those crime shows on television. I knelt, touching the snow where the blood had sunk through its thin crust. When I looked up, I saw him again. He was leaning on a tree trunk. His physique was incredible. Every muscle toned, not an ounce of fat on him at all. I saw the blood dripping from a wound in his side, but it wasn't until I was much closer that I saw that part of the radiator grill had punched into his side like a spear. I looked up from the wound to his face and saw the pain there. Before I could say anything, He turned slightly and said something in that impossibly melodic, sing-song voice of his. I don't understand what you're saying, I said. He said something else, his song ending abruptly as he winced and doubled up, clutching at the wound in his side. When he straightened up, I saw that the wound had opened up and was bleeding freely. Let me help you, I said, reaching out for him. I stopped before I touched him. It wasn't the blood. It wasn't the look of fear in his eyes. It was the antlers. They were rooted deep into his temples. I could see the skin wrinkle around them where they emerged. They weren't a headdress. The horned man said something then, and I realized what his voice sounded like. The caesars of the snow... "'slipping from those high branches overhead, "'and like the rush of water beneath the frozen surface of a small mountain stream. "'He was speaking with the tongue of the winter forest, "'and then he slumped forward into my arms. "'I knelt in the snow, cradling him. "'I didn't know what else to do. "'I was half horrified, half morbidly curious. "'He was talking urgently now, He could have been begging me to save his life or cursing me for ending it. I really couldn't tell the difference. The blood soaked into the snow, feeding the roots of the tree the horned man had been leaning against before he had fallen. I looked up at the overhanging branches. Despite the season, they were verdant. Big, thick leaves, green against the blanket of white that was everywhere else. I shivered. For once it wasn't the cold. I knew. I couldn't tell you how I knew, but I was damn sure I was right. That the branches had been bare just a few minutes before, and that it was the horned man's blood that had brought the leaves forth. All around me the rustling grew more intrusive. I looked up to see the leaves moving, my first thought was that the cold had got my mind, and I was actually lying in the snow somewhere, shivering out my last moments with some nice trippy hallucination. the leaves my mind's way of giving me a nice blanket to snuggle up under. They slithered on vines down the trunk of the tree, reaching out to take the horned man from my arms. I wasn't about to fight them. I gave him up readily and stumbled back a few half-steps, landing on my ass in the snow, as the vines and leaves drew the horned man up against the tree trunk and lashed him to it. The leaves crept across his face, into his mouth and eyes and nose, across his chest and his legs as he drew them up, "'Blood stained a few of them, only for them to brown and rot "'and be replaced by more and more fresh leaves. "'In a matter of minutes, he was buried beneath the vegetation, "'and I just sat there and watched it happen. "'The leaves rustled and rippled, alive. "'I saw something working its way through them "'and didn't realise what it was "'until the broken piece of the radiator grill "'lay on the snow beside the tree.' The forest had reclaimed him, or, in other words, I had killed him. I felt this immense wave of guilt. He'd been trying to tell me something, even as he was dying, and I hadn't been able to understand his last words. What kind of human being did that make me? Behind me, something moved, causing the branches to rustle. I turned, expecting to see that Mel had changed her mind, and followed me from the car. She hadn't. Instead of the love of my life standing there, I saw a raven faced woman sculpted from the banks of snow. Hypothermia. It had to be. That was a symptom of hypothermia, wasn't it? Losing my mind. That made sense, as much as anything did. But that couldn't be right, could it? When I'd hit the man with the car, the heaters had been working just fine. Neither of us were freezing. But surely I had thought it was a moose. I hadn't really believed I'd hit the naked man until I'd been out of the car for a while. Not long enough for the cold to mess with my brain, though. Surely. I didn't know much about hypothermia, save for the fact that your skin turned blue because all of the surface blood vessels contracted to better keep your vital organs warm. I looked down at my hands. They were shaking. That was another symptom, wasn't it? Convulsions? Poor muscle coordination. I tried to think, but everything was just so sluggish. I pushed back the hood of my Sami coat and sat there in the snow, just looking at the leaves that twisted around a thick trunk of the tree. Then I looked at the snow and the bulging roots. There was blood there. I fixated on it and scrambled forward, determined to prove to myself that I wasn't hallucinating, that there really was blood there, and, by extension, the horned man really was buried beneath the leaves. I was sweating under the thick lambskin. Sweat pooled around the nape of my neck and down my back. I pulled at the Sami coat, and then, without thinking, started to pull it up over my head. I shook myself off and rose unsteadily, "'My legs weren't good. "'I was clumsy. "'My head was spinning. "'I pulled my shirt off "'and stood there topless. "'It wasn't so cold, I realised. "'Far from it. "'It was blessedly cool. "'I slipped the buckle on my belt "'and undid the buttons on my jeans "'and kicked off my shoes "'and stood there naked "'in the middle of the forest. "'And it felt good, potent. "'I looked down at my body "'and smiled. "'I was hard.' Filled with the vitality of nature, I was alive with it. I knelt, dipping my fingers into the blood spatter, and wiped them down either cheek like a tribal paint. A bone-white antler poked through the leaves. I pulled at it, rooting frantically to untangle it from the foliage. A dead moose's head looked up at me with glassy eyes. I blinked, trying to understand what I was seeing. "'A moose?' "'And then I understood. "'Transubstantiation. "'The man had been wearing a moose's head, "'but when it had been on his head, "'he had become the horned man. "'He had become the wild spirit, "'the hunter, the god of the beasts of the forest. "'And that was what was happening to me. "'I spread my arms wide.' embracing the sheer thrill of the air on my skin. I couldn't understand how I had ever suffered the constraints of clothes. It was a life for a life. That's what was happening here. I'd killed the horned man, and now the forest was demanding a sacrifice from me. I had to stand in his stead. I had to grow my own antlers. I had to become the next horned man. But how? How? How could I grow horns? Was that what he had been trying to tell me? Had he been trying to share the secret to transubstantiation? Was there something I could do? A leaf, or a seed, or something that I could consume that would germinate inside me, linking me forever with a forest I was cursed to protect? Did I even have to grow them? Could I not don the moose's head and become the horned man? I could. I could. Of course I could. I reached into the thick foliage, scraping away the frost and the snow and pulled out the moose's head. I pushed it down onto my own head, savouring the sudden thrill of earth magic that flowed through it into me. I was connected to all living things. I was connected to each and every tree, each and every root, thorn and weed. I could feel myself changing. I could feel the blood "'thickening in my veins. "'I had to get back to the car. "'I had to get back to Mel "'before my transformation was complete. "'I had to tell her I loved her. "'I had to make her understand "'a life for a life. "'I started to run, "'but I stumbled more and more frequently, "'my legs betraying me "'when I wanted them to fly like the wind. "'I pushed myself back to my feet "'and stumbled back towards the road.' I knew I was getting closer because the snow grew thicker and thicker, and more of it filtered through the canopy of leaves, making it hard to see more than a few feet in front of me. But my eyes weren't stinging any more, and then I started to run—really run—with the grace of the moose, sure-footed, fleet. I bounded from tree to tree until I found the car. I could smell the metal; it was the only unnatural thing in my forest. She was still there, in the driver's seat, coat and blanket on. Frost coated the glass. I stood on the edge of the trees, unsure suddenly in my nakedness. Would she see me? Would she recognize me? Or would she see the horned man? I moved along the tree line, watching the car, watching her. She fired my blood. After all of these years together, she still fired my blood. I didn't know how long I had, minutes, hours, before the transformation was complete. I had to talk to her, I had to say goodbye, but my blood thrilled at the mere proximity of her, and before I realized what I was doing, I was running down from the embankment, and dragging open the door, and dragging Mel out into the freezing air. "'It's me,' I said. I knew I was babbling. "'It's me!' You won't believe what's happening to me. I'm changing. I'm changing. She looked at me like I was speaking an alien language, and I knew I had already changed more than I thought. I was speaking with the tongue of the forest. That didn't stop me from trying to make her understand me. I don't know how long I've got. You need to understand. You need to know. I love you. I've always loved you. But I killed him. I killed the guardian of the forest, the spirit, and now I am becoming him. It's the old ways. I am becoming the horn man, a life for a life. She kicked and struggled in my arms, not listening. I love you, I said again, like the whisper of the wind through the leaves. I love you, I love you, I love you. She kept on struggling, and I kept on telling her I loved her, until she stopped struggling and lay still in my arms. She had to understand. She had to know I loved her. But I knew she couldn't. She saw my horns, and she saw a devil. She saw my nakedness, and she saw a beast. Could she make the change with me? Would she, if she were capable? She was shivering. It was the damned coat and all of those clothes. I knew that now. I started pulling at her Sami coat, trying to get it up over her head. She started fighting me again. I tried to soothe her, saying over and over, ''It's okay. It's all right.'' "'This is better, trust me, this is better. "'It's okay, it's all right.' "'I fumbled with the buttons on her shirt. "'My fingers wouldn't do what I wanted them to do. "'And over and over. "'It's okay, it's all right.' "'Until the fight left her. "'I pulled at her trousers and pushed into her, savoring the warmth our bodies created. "'She was crying. "'Tears of joy. "'They frosted on her cheek.' and even as I lost my seed inside her, I knew it would germinate, that she would forever hold a part of the spirit of the forest within her, and that our love had cheated the life for a life packed. Two of us had been in the car when we hit the horned man, two souls, and two souls would be in the car when she drove away. I tried to talk to her, but I knew my words had become completely unintelligible now. I left her there, naked in the snow. I felt more alive than I had ever felt. I moved back to the safety of the trees. The cold was enervating, an aphrodisiac. But more, I could feel spring coming. I could feel it deep in the earth, working its way up. I could feel the magic of renewal that accompanied it. I could feel life. This was my forest now. We were bound. I watched as Mel dragged herself back toward the open car door, knowing that this time when she fumbled with the key and turned it, it would catch and the engine would fire up as it turned over. That was the bargain I had made in becoming the horned man. A life for a life. I had given myself so that she might live. But the needs of the forest were strong the need to scatter its seed, for the spirits and the old ways to survive. So, at the last, we had been blessed with one last chance to share our love. I didn't watch her go. I couldn't bear the thought of knowing I would never see her again. Instead, I had to cherish the thought of my love inside her even now. She knew it was our last time together, She was sobbing as she slammed the door, breaking her heart. I turned on my heel and ran, naked into the forest. The antlers had already started to take root in my skull. I could feel them burrowing in through the bone. This was my domain. I was the hunter. I was the god of the beasts. More cars would come. More travelers. More tourists. When I was tired... Perhaps I would let one hit me and trade places, a life for a life. But for now, I was the horned man.
0: Thank you, Stephen. I still feel the chill. Stephen Seville has edited and co-edited numerous anthologies. These include the 2006 science fiction and fantasy anthology Elemental and a benefit anthology for children who survived the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. And that book included work by Arthur C. Clarke, Brian Aldiss, David Drake, Nina Kariki Hoffman, Larry Niven, Joe Haldeman, and many, 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 many more. His novels include The Secret Life of Colors, Laughing Boy's Shadow, The Black Chalice, Hallowed Ground, co-written with David Nile Wilson, and For This is Hell, co-written with Aaron Rosenberg. And even from Sweden, Saville supports the London-based Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. Thanks again, Stephen. Tonight's story was narrated for us by none other than Jack Calverly, the host of Crime City Central here on the District of Wonders network. Jack lives in central London, the most densely populated local authority in the UK, and is surrounded, he says, by people, activity, and noise. Ah, so familiar to one who lives within three blocks of Wrigley Field here in Chicago. Jack says... I like making things. I enjoy the crafting process, whether making virtual goods like software, which is his day job, or make-believe worlds from made-up words and pictures. And like all of us in the district, Jack firmly believes in crossover between mediums. He's been heard reading for the Starship Sofa, writing for Friday Challenge, and has been seen at exhibitions trying to flog his photoshopped holiday snaps. Thanks, Jack. Hope you have time to come back and build a few more word worlds for us here in the Nook. And that will be that this evening. Stop by our site. Stop by iTunes and love us. Stop by and drop a few dollars or a few quid or a few of whatever currency you fancy into the e-hopper to keep us going. And so, now, up with you. Leave the lap robes. You will not need them in the night. It is warmer out there than you can imagine. Stroll home in a leisurely manner, please. Don't put a strain on yourself. And when you get home, creep the stairs and open the fridge for a cold something or to let the frosty air mist over you in the heat. But shh. Be very quiet about it. Don't fright the eggs. This late at night, they're all having pleasant dreams. Hmm?
3: This presentation has been brought to you by The District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www..
2: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend, but what
4: won't change? Needing health insurance? United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing
2: times.
3: DistrictOfWonders.com Thank you for listening.